That chat is brought to you by Walters. Join Walters Sports Bar on Saturday beginning at 10 a.m. for the most electrifying football showdown of the year, the FA Cup Final. Witness the intense battle between two football giants, Manchester City and Manchester United, clashing on the grandest stage at Walters. They are turning up the excitement with big screens, surround sound, and a lively atmosphere that'll make you feel like you're right there in the stadium. Indulge in Walters delicious food, refreshing drinks, and cheer for your favorite team with fellow passionate football fans. Do not miss this epic showdown and be part of the FA Cup Final experience at Walters Sports Bar. Register for our event and receive a free mimosa or Bloody Mary at waltersdc.com. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's Luis Garcia. Pitch on the way. Swing it's cracked in the air to left. Deep toward the corner. Schwarber chasing back. It's over his head, and this one may go. It is gone. Makes it 7-1 Nationals. Harvey sets, fires. Swinging a ground ball toward the middle. It's through past the diving Abrams for a base hit. Schwarber will score. Headed for the plate is Stott. It's now the Nationals 7, the Phillies 6. Outfield deep, swung the other way, and center and in left, the pitch. Swinging a ground ball toward the middle of the diamond. Abrams has it. We'll go to the back, step on second, throw to first, off the mark, throws it away, and here comes the tying run in to score. Now can Thomas bring him home? Call leading off second, Brogdon comes set. On two and two, the kick in the pitch. Breaking ball, line to left center field. Marsh coming on, coming on, coming on, can't get it! Drops in for a hit. Call around third, he scores! On a go-ahead RBI single for Lane Thomas. Everyone at the lower level on their feet. Finnegan sets. Here's the pitch. Swing and a high pop-up. It's playable for the first baseman, Dom Smith. He's camped under it waiting, and he makes the catch in fair territory. And bang, Zuma Curly W's in the books. Kyle Finnegan gets it done in the top of the ninth inning. A Curly W's in the books. The final score tonight, the Washington Nationals 8, the Philadelphia Phillies 7. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, June 3rd, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So as we all know, the Nats last season had the worst record and worst run differential in the majors. The Philadelphia Phillies last season won the National League pennant. And yet here we are this season, and each team is 25 and 32. And actually, the Nats have the better run differential, minus 27 
versus minus 46. We on Friday night had yet another wild Nats game. We've had a good number of wild Nats games recently, but we on Friday night also had a Nationals win, an 8-7 win over the Phillies in game one of a three-game series. The Nats won this game despite blowing a 6-0 fourth-inning lead, but the Nats now over their last two games have totaled 18 runs and you know, Mark, we this season have seen the Nats win with pitching, defense, and just enough offense, but the formula lately <laughs> has been like the exact opposite. Not much pitching, questionable defense, but a whole lot of offense. And we once again saw a whole lot of offense in this game on Friday night. This felt like uh, June 2nd, 2019, Al. <laughs> now, I'm not going to suggest that the end result of the season is going to be anywhere close to what that one was, but just the style of game where you're trying to score some runs, you hit the ball in the air and it leaves the park on occasion, you string together some rallies, and then you pray like crazy that your bullpen, which is kind of in pieces right now and overworked and you name it, that they can just hang on late. They don't. You have to ask the lineup to come back and take the lead again for you and then try to close it out after that. It kind of had a pre-rebuild feeling to the way they went about this game. I don't know if that's a sustainable formula for them to try to win very often, but it's nice to see they have that in their bag if they ever do need it. And it's nice to see them go up against teams that are supposed to be good. Maybe this one is not at the moment. But it's nice to see them face these kind of opponents and go toe-to-toe and come out on top at the end of the day. This means something to the guys in that clubhouse, especially the young ones who are in this for the first time. These are meaningful games for them, and that's not something we've talked about here in quite a while. There are some disappointing teams in baseball this season. You very much could argue the Phillies are the most disappointing of the disappointing teams, but that is a Philadelphia Phillies problem. This still is a team that is capable of hitting, and we did see the team hit on Friday night. I mean, Friday was a hot day in the Washington, D.C. area. Felt more like a July day than uh, the day did an early June day, but the Nats themselves hit quite a bit in this game. Eight hits, Eight runs on 11 hits, three walks. The Nats in this game, an oh-so-efficient five for six with runners in scoring position. The Phillies actually outhit the Nats in this game 12-11, but the Phillies went three for 12 with runners in scoring position. And this was another game in which you got significant production from a number of guys in the lineup. I mean, some guys did more than others. You did have a couple of 0-for-4s in Dominic Smith and K-Bert Ruiz, but, you know, one through five, you got production eight and nine, you got production. And, you know, we've gone from this Nats lineup not being imposing, and I guess it still really isn't imposing, but there now, I think, is a feeling of you have multiple guys who seem to be in pretty good places here. And I don't know that we've been able to say that for any prolonged period of time this season. Right now, you can name two, three, four Nats hitters who seem to be doing quite well. Yeah. And I think that the key there is that maybe it doesn't look all that imposing on paper or top to bottom, but there also aren't a whole lot of just easy outs there. They're getting production from all over the place. And so you don't necessarily get to the bottom of the lineup and say, okay, well, this is my easy inning here. That has not been the case. And I I think that's something to be said for that is that they're a little bit relentless in the way they go about this. Doesn't always work for them, but they have now shown, I think, enough times this ability to get production from a number of different guys to come through in big spots. Jamer Candelario is a doubles machine right now. He had two more of them, both scoring runs in the first two innings of the game. He is on pace for 48 doubles this season and 20 homers, by the way. 
That's been a really nice development. Lane Thomas continues to deliver for them from the top spot. CJ Abrams continues to do stuff for them from the bottom. And it was really nice in this game to see Alex Call, who had been struggling at the plate, got on base three times, drove in a run, and had maybe the secret most important play of the game, the stolen base in the eighth inning to set up the winning run. Yeah, that stolen base proved to be a big deal in the moment, really didn't come off like that big of a deal, but it ended up being a big deal because the Nats took the lead on that Lane Thomas, two out, tie-breaking, RBI single to left center field for an 8-7 Nats lead. Lane in that at-bat had been down at 1.12. Lane on Friday night, one for four with the RBI single and a walk. The walk came in a two-run Nats first, a leadoff nine-pitch walk. You know, this is another thing that we're seeing with the Nats, a lot of long at-bats. Candelario's been great in that regard. We saw in this game, I just mentioned the Thomas nine-pitch walk. How about what Joey Manessis did in the Nats' four-run second, a two-out RBI single to left field for a 6-0 Nats lead. The RBI single concluded an 11-pitch plate appearance in which he was down in the count at one point, 0-2. Kevin Franzen on Masson called that maybe the at-bat of the season so far for the Nats in terms of the battle that was waged between Manessis and the Philly starting pitcher Zach Wheeler. But what a job by Manessis. And again, the Nats are fighting. The boys are battling, not just later in games, but plate appearance to plate appearance, driving up pitch counts. We certainly saw that on Friday night. And look, they did this against Zach Wheeler a good pitcher, a pitcher they have not had success against in quite a while. This is the first time they'd scored this many runs off Zach Wheeler since April of 2019, 13 starts ago against him. They faced him a lot when he's with the Mets and with the Phillies. For the most part, the last couple of years, as he has seen his career take off and he's become a, a Cy Young candidate, they have not had success against him. They were relentless against him in this game Early on, I mean, his pitch count was at 61 after two innings. He settled down a little bit, but then after Luis Garcia homered off him in the fourth, that was it. So you knocked him out and you're thinking, okay, you're in good shape. Now, it didn't exactly work out like that because the Phillies bullpen locked it down after that until the final inning in the eighth. But I've been impressed to see them do this against a good quality pitcher. It's one thing to do against Noah Syndergaard, who maybe used to be a quality pitcher, but does not appear to be so much anymore. Zach Wheeler still is. And for them to do that against him, getting that production from so many guys, so many good quality at bats along the way, I thought that was a big step for this lineup. Was good to see. You mentioned the Luis Garcia home run that that's in this game. Four of the team's 11 hits were extra base hits. Garcia had a homer. Man, lately it feels like Garcia either goes over or he has multiple hits and has, you know, like multiple big hits. Garcia in this game in a four-run second, a two-out single up the middle on a one-two pitch, and then in a one-run fourth, a two-out first pitch opposite field solo homer to left for a 7-1 Nats lead. So Luis in this game, two for five with the solo homer and the single. I mentioned Manessis, he in this game, two for three, RBI single, another single, and a walk. We talked a bit about Jamer Candelario. I mean, this is so really amazing from where he was to where he now is. I mean, he for basically a month now has just been killing it for the Nats. He on Friday night, two for four with a two-run double and an RBI double. We talked about Lane Thomas. He did well. And you mentioned Alex Call. It felt like it had been a long time since we had had anything to talk about with Alex Call in terms of like a truly productive offensive game. Call in this game in that number nine spot, two for three with the RBI single, another single, 
the aforementioned uh, walk and stolen base. You know, we mentioned the walk in the one-run eighth, but four-run second, Alex Caller one out opposite field RBI single to right center to put the Nats up 3 nothing. He was down in that plate appearance at 1.12. Bottom of the six had a two-out infield single to the left side of the infield. So yeah, like up and down the lineup. You talk about like a lineup being long, the Nats lately have actually exhibited lengthy lineups, guys in various spots coming through. Right. And so maybe there isn't that one name that the opposing manager has to circle and say, okay, watch out for him. But there also isn't that one or two names on there that they can say, okay, let's just try to get it to this guy. Everybody is capable of producing at some point for them. Call, it had been a rough go at it, batting average way down in the low 200s, OPS around 600, not really good. But he gave him some good quality bats. The walk was big with two outs. Again, you're not really thinking they're going to do anything in that eighth inning. They've already now given up the lead. They're about to go down one, two, three. And the next thing you know, they're going to have to try to hold it down in the ninth and hope they can win it in a walk-off. And instead, he works the walk. And then the stolen base, it came on the fourth pitch of the at-bat. And it was a perfect pitch to go on. It was a changeup down in the dirt. He slides in safe. And moments later, Lane Thomas has the hit. And so that stolen base was huge. It may have been in the moment, not really noticed. In the dugout, in the clubhouse, they were talking about that stolen base as a key moment in the game. So there are some games still going on as we record this installment of the podcast late night on Friday night. But as things stand right now, at this very moment in time, as we are recording, here's where the Nats stand in uh, the slash line categories in terms of overall team offense. Number four in the majors in team batting average, 265. Number nine in the majors in team on base percentage at 329. And actually up to number 19 in the majors in team slugging percentage at 393. Number 19 out of 30 isn't good, but that's a lot better than where the Nats had been, which was like deep into the 20s. So that slugging percentage number for the team is creeping up. And in terms of just overall team OPS for this season, the Nats are tied for 17th. So middle of the pack. So this is an evolving thing, right? We talk about things as they happen. The offense early this season was not good at all, and we harped on that. The offense lately has been a lot better. And so, you know, you do wonder if maybe by the end of this season, especially as some of these young guys become more experienced and hopefully become better hitters, you know, you think especially about someone like a C.J. Abrams, maybe this does end up being a halfway decent, dare I say, good offensive team. I mean, it's not unthinkable the way it was unthinkable just a few weeks ago. Right. And I think in May, there might have been ninth in the whole league in slugging. So, I mean, they had a good sustained run over a month. It wasn't like this just happened here recently. It's improvement. What's the number one thing you could say you could hope for this season? Improvement from start to finish, especially from the young guys. I think we absolutely have seen that. You want to continue to see it. Garcia has been a guy you can count on up in the lineup at the number two spot. Candelario obviously has come through for them. Manessis is still isn't hitting for power, but he is coming through. He's hitting 305 batting average. And he's coming through with some clutch hits and driving in runs. That's been good. Cordy Dickerson has been fine for them when he plays. I think Dom Smith's probably been the most disappointing right now, given that somebody who's supposed to be at least producing on a somewhat regular basis for you. He's the everyday first baseman. He came up in a couple of spots with a chance to do something in this game and did not. It's been a struggle for him, especially with runners in scoring position. But otherwise, they're getting something out of just about everybody. And I agree. I don't think it's fair to talk about this team as, oh, well, they don't hit. They just have to pitch and play defense to win games. No, I think we've seen here in the last couple of weeks, they can win games by outscoring the opponent. That's not something we were talking about in April. 
No, I mean, to that point, the Nats have won four of their last seven games now. Three of the four wins have been what you would call slugfest wins. A 12-10 win at Kansas City on May 26th, the 10-6 win at the Dodgers this past Wednesday, and now this 8-7 win over the Phillies on Friday night. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Kate Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfas has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red-hot antitrust, IP litigation, white-collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years, in fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now the pitch, swinging a high drive to left center field and deep back call to the warning track. He leaps at the fence, and this one is gone. It just clears right in front of the Brewhouse red seats, just over the fence. A multi-homer game for Castellanos, his seventh of the year. He's driven all the Phillies' runs. It's now the Nationals' seven in Philadelphia three. Well, the Nats needed every one of those eight runs in this 8-7 win over the Phillies on Friday night because, once again, the uh, Nats' run prevention uh, was not at uh, an optimal level, shall we say. So the bullpen remains an absolute mess. We'll get to that in a bit. But Josiah Gray 
for a few weeks now has not been where he was earlier this season. And I've talked about there potentially being like a market correction here because Gray's process numbers have not matched up with his result numbers. The results have been a lot better than the process numbers would suggest. And Gray on Friday night had another game in which, you know, just things were not all there. Four runs in five and a third innings ended up being the final line. He gave up six hits, two home runs, a double and three singles. And I emphasize uh, two home runs because this was the first time that Gray allowed multiple home runs in a game since his first start this season. He on Friday night issued two walks, had four strikeouts through 94 pitches, 58 strikes versus 36 balls. Even in innings in which things went well, things were not necessarily going well. Scoreless top of the first, despite giving up a leadoff single to right field by Kyle Schwarber on a 1-2 pitch and then issuing a walk of Bryson Stott. Although Gray, to his credit, then recorded three consecutive outs, including swinging strikeouts of uh, two X-Nats and then the uh, Phillies numbers three and five batters, Bryce Harper and Trey Turner, respectively. Gray had a scoreless top of the second, despite giving up a one-out single by Brandon Marsh up the middle and issuing a two-out walk of the Phillies number nine batter, Drew Ellis. And when it came to the home runs, a monster game by Nick Castellanos, four for five with five RBI, two homers, a double, uh, had a single as well. Gray gave up a homer to Castellanos, top of the fourth, a leadoff first pitch, opposite field homer to right field. And then top of the sixth, Gray got charged with three runs. He gave up a one-out two-run homer by Castellanos to left center field to cut the Nats' lead to 7-3. And then Gray gave up a one-out double by Trey Turner to left, despite Trey having been down at 1.02. And then that was it. Josiah Gray was done for the night. Were you at all surprised when Davey Martinez pulled Josiah at that point? Or... Did you say, nah, you know what? This makes sense. I agreed with the move. That last inning, he definitely, he was getting hit hard and that was not the same stuff. I mean, what's funny is for five innings, this felt like a carbon copy of what we've been seeing from him lately. Not great, kind of getting in trouble, but somehow managing to limit the damage. I mean, it's one run through five innings at that point, the Castellanos home run, the first one, which actually I thought was a pretty good pitch. And he just like forced it over the right field wall on that one. But then the sixth, it did kind of come apart. You had Harper hitting a ball to the warning track. He thought off the bat, Bryce did, that it was gone. He was standing there admiring it, wound up being caught at the fence. Then you have the Castellano second homer, which was a legit bomb. And then the double by Trey Turner was hit really hard. So I think it was the appropriate time. Now, I know Davey's thinking, man, I want to get through six. That sets up the bullpen so much better if we just have to go seven, eight, nine. But that was not going to happen on this night. So I think he made the move when he needed to, although that then set up a lot of headaches the rest of the way, as we'll get to here. So I was really interested going into this game for Josiah Gray. I thought facing a good lineup that hits for power, the weather is heating up, so the ball's going to start to fly finally for the first time this year. Can he keep them in the park can he continue to have the success that he has so far this year against this lineup on a warm night? And for most of the night, he did. And then that last inning, I think, really changed the way that we will perceive the start. This actually ends up as his second worst start of the season, his worst since that debut game. And the margin was very thin. Like he was only a couple pitches away, I think, from this actually being a very good start. But you got to finish what you start. And I think by the sixth inning, he just did not have it anymore. Yeah, and I think you also could say the margin was thin in the opposite direction to where he's putting guys on base and things could have gotten ugly even early in the game, if not, you know, for a good pitch here, a good pitch there. 
I think two things with Friday night for Josiah Gray. Number one, anytime you establish a big lead early in a game, you really would like for your starting pitcher to eat up at least six innings. And Gray did not end up doing that. I mean, you're up 6 nothing in the fourth inning in this game. That's a recipe for your starter to go at least six innings. The other thing is, you know, Gray working backwards here now, just going off the final lines, which don't always tell the entire story. I'll grant you that. But, you know, four runs in five and a third innings. His outing prior to Friday night, he lasted for just four innings because he threw 91 pitches over the four innings. He allowed two runs. The outing prior to that, one run in five innings, but he issued a staggering six walks in that game. So it's, you know, it's been like these last three starts where we haven't seen him be as effective as he had been earlier in the year. But as we've said, this is part of a process. It's part of the growth. He's not getting ripped in these games. And he is giving you, you know, it's, it's not like you're seeing him have a clunker to where it's two innings, three innings, and he's out of there. You know, like his quote unquote clunkers have been four inning starts. So, okay. I just would like to see him get back to having, you know, one run in six innings, six strikeouts, that kind of Josiah Gray. We haven't seen that in a little bit here. Sure. Absolutely. And you'd love to see it against a good lineup and maybe he'll get there at some point. But look, this is a team that he's already faced a good amount of time. They've had some success against him. It's a pretty imposing lineup. I know they're not hitting the way they're supposed to right now, but you still look at that Schwarber, Harper, Castellanos, Turner, Real Muto. That's some imposing stuff. And so that's a good test for any pitcher. It definitely was for Josiah Gray. And, you know, he it was not his best, of course, but he lived to tell about it. He did depart with the lead. He wanted to be better, especially the big lead that they had given him, but it was not a complete meltdown. And I still feel like there's progress there that in similar situations a year ago, he would not have made it as far as he did in this one. So there was Josiah Gray on Friday night, and then there was the latest installment of as the bullpen turns uh, with this Nationals bullpen. So four Nats relievers on Friday night officially combined to allow three runs, two earned in three and two-thirds innings. But there's a lot more to what went on with the bullpen than just that. Carl Edwards Jr., Hunter Harvey, Mason Thompson, and Kyle Finnegan were the Nats four relievers in this game. So in theory, the Nats top four relievers. Edwards officially allowed two runs in one inning. He faced six batters, got just three outs, came into the game, top of the six, runner on second, one out, Nats up 7-3, sandwiched two outs around a two-out first pitch, opposite field RBI single by Brandon Marsh into left field to cut the Nats lead to 7-4. And then Edwards, in what ended up being a two-run seventh for the Phillies, gave up a one-out first pitch double by Kyle Schwarber to the right field corner, followed by a one-out single by Bryson Stott up the middle, uh, despite a great diving catch of the ball by C.J. Abrams, but that did end up being an infield single. Then Hunter Harvey came into the game. The guy who pretty clearly at this point is the Nats' ace reliever. He was brought into an ace reliever type spot. Top of the seventh, runners at the corners, one out, Nats up 7-4. Harvey, to the first batter he faced, issued a one-out, four-pitch walk of Bryce Harper to load the bases and then gave up a one-out, bases-loaded, two-run single by Nick Castellanos up the middle on an 0-2 pitch to cut the Nats' lead to 7-6. So the ace reliever did not come through. Mason Thompson then came into the game. And in the adventures of Mason Thompson on Friday night, we had him allowing one run in a third of an inning. He lasted for just three batters in the top of the eighth. He issued a nine-pitch leadoff walk of Brandon Marsh, despite him having been down at 1.02. And Thompson gave up a one-out first-pitch single by the Phillies' number nine batter, Drew Ellis, to left field. And then Kyle Finnegan came into the game, and he ended up tossing one and two-thirds scoreless innings. Finnegan actually got the win, uh, but also a blown save, although the blown save came via an error. It came into the game top of the eighth, runners on first and second, 
second, one out, Nats up 7-6. Finnegan to the first batter he faced, induced a grounder by Kyle Schwarber. But C.J. Abrams, a run-throwing scoring error to tie the game at 7. The pitch, swinging a ground ball toward the middle of the diamond. Abrams has it. We'll go to the back, step on second, throw to first, off the mark, throws it away. And here comes the tying run in to score. And yet another instance of like an ill-timed error by the Nats here lately. They've had a few of these lately. But Finnegan did then toss a scoreless top of the ninth. Did give up a double with one out, a one-out full count opposite field double by guess who? Nick Castellanos to the right center field gap. But the Nats did end up winning this game. So easy, this victory was not, you know, clean. This bullpen performance was not. But props to Finnegan for getting those final five outs. And uh, the Nats do win, but not in uh, the easiest of ways. I don't even know where to begin with all of this. There is so much going on there. It has become such a chore for Davey Martinez to try to cobble together these outs and figure out who to use where and who he can try to go to beyond his main three. And, you know, he tried to do that with Mason Thompson. You get the bottom of the order in the eighth inning. You figure, all right, let's give it a shot. And then he couldn't do that. So now you have to ask Finnegan to get out of the eighth. And now you got to ask him to come back for the ninth. He wasn't going to have him pitch the ninth. He threw 13 pitches to get out of the eighth. Davey told him, no, I, you know, I think that might be enough. And Finnegan was adamant. No, I got this. I want to do this. This is going to be the heart of their lineup now. In the ninth, he went back out there and he ends up throwing 34 pitches, the same number that Hunter Harvey threw to get the six out save on Wednesday in LA. It's like every single night, somebody is having to go above and beyond just to try to get through a game for them in the bullpen. The workload is catching up to them. It has to. I don't know how it couldn't. You're now at a point where those three guys, Finnegan, Harvey, and Edwards, have all made at least 24 and 26 appearances between them. Extrapolate that out. It's between 68 and 74 appearances for the season. That's a lot of work for all of them. I don't fault Davey for using them as much as he has. It's the situations they're in. Every one of these games has been close. He doesn't have anyone else he can trust. When he tries to trust somebody else, they don't show that they deserve to be trusted. On the one hand, it's frustrating. You want them to perform better. On the other hand, I kind of have some sympathy. And anytime they do come through like Finnegan did in this game, I think you should applaud him for that because that was a huge spot for him to do that. He struck out Bryce Harper. He got Trey Turner to fly out. He got Real Muto to pop up to end the game. I mean, that was a big moment for a guy who is being asked to do a lot right now. And somehow, some way, they're finding a way to get through this, but it does in a lot of ways remind me of like the 2017, 2019 teams that were so good in other departments and just tried to hold on to win games with a bullpen that was inferior. It feels like that's where they are right now with this group, just without the you know exceptional rotation and lineup and a, a team that's in first place. Yeah, those would be uh, some key differences there. <laughs> uh, the bullpen is just not good. I mean, I don't know how many other ways we can say it. It's just not a very good bullpen. And You know, the workload thing, it's funny, right? Following this team, talking about this team, this bullpen is being leaned on a lot. And yet, when you look at the overall numbers, it's not like the Nats lead the world in relief innings for the season. The Nats are actually middle of the pack in terms of relief innings accumulated this year. The number one team in the majors in terms of bullpen innings this season is the best team in the majors, the Tampa Bay Rays. But the Rays go into a season with sort of this mindset of, We're going to lean on our pen a ton. And so they condition their guys to pitch a lot. The Rays are optioning guys back and forth. There is sort of this plan in place. 
With the Nats, you don't necessarily have that. You know, you're trying to figure out the bullpen as the season goes on. As we've talked about, the Nats have done very little in the way of optioning guys back and forth from Rochester to the majors in order to have fresh bullpen arms. And so, you know, save for injury, what you have in the bullpen is more or less what you expect to have over the course of the season. And so, yeah, like if a guy is pitching a lot, the notion of sending him down to Rochester for a few days to bring someone else up, the Nats just don't do that. They don't have guys with whom the team can do that. And so this is kind of how it's going to be. Unless guys get hot or get appreciably better as the season goes on, and maybe that happens, that could happen, I feel like this probably is what we're looking at here with this Nats bullpen this season. You know what would help out so much right now, Al? A lefty. A lefty who could actually get somebody out. Look at the Phillies lineup in this game. One, two, three. Schwarber, Stott, Harper. All left-handed hitters. They don't normally do that. Stott doesn't usually hit up there. Schwarber has not always hit leadoff. That was a specific move by Rob Thompson, understanding that the Nats do not have a lefty they can turn to. When those three guys were coming up late in this game, the Nationals did not have a lefty they could call upon to try to get them out. And that's a problem. It's been a problem for a while. I'm not saying they've missed out that there's somebody that they should have up here that they don't. They don't. Now, we may be getting close to the point that Sean Doolittle is actually going to be in the conversation here. He just pitched back-to-back days for Fredericksburg. He just pitched four times in seven days on rehab. I think that's a big deal. If he can handle that workload and the arm feels all right, that to me is a sign that he's pretty close to ready. Now, I don't know if he's going to be effective. He's not throwing as hard as he did before all this, but still topping out at 92. I have no idea what kind of pitcher he's going to be. But I do know if I'm Davey Martinez right now, any left-hander with experience that you can call upon for situations like that in this game would be very, very welcome. Well, you have nothing to lose. And so to me, if Doolittle shows anything in the minors, bring him up and see if he can help you. Because he did pitch well in his brief time pitching at the major league level last season. It is possible that we end up adding Sean Doolittle to the list of all of these guys who have ended their major league careers in recent seasons playing for the Nats. I mean, you know, because Doolittle was not doing well prior to this second go round here with the Nats. But yeah, give him a shot. You have nothing to lose. And, you know, hopefully he is back with the Nats at the major league level sooner rather than later. Hey, Nat Chat listeners, Tim Shovers here, producer and founder of the podcast, here to tell you about game time. Do you struggle sometimes to find tickets to your favorite events? Buying tickets to your favorites shouldn't be so stressful. That's why you should look into the game time app. It's even harder these days with the lack of paper tickets available on the street. If you're looking for tickets to Nats, DC United, or even the Drake concert this summer, GameTime offers the lowest price guarantee, event cancellation protection, job loss protection, and more. GameTime is the place for last-minute ticket deals. Forget planning months in advance. GameTime has deals on tickets right up to the day of the event. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account at GameTime.co and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. So, a big spot of the game here in the second. Ray comes set. Is 0-1 on the way, inside, throw down to first, they're going to get him! They have him in a rundown, Smith is running Ellis towards second, running him back towards first, Abrams tags him out! The back pick, and Ellis 
nowhere near first base. There were some other pitching items relating to the Nats on Friday. So we have another minor league promotion to discuss here. Jake Bennett has been elevated from low A Fredericksburg to high A Wilmington. Jake Bennett was taken by the Nats in the second round of the 2022 MLB draft out of the University of Oklahoma. So Cade Cavalli, Jake Irvin, and Jake Bennett, all of them boomer Sooners. This is Bennett's age 22 season. Excellent numbers for the Fred Nats this season. Nine starts, 42 innings, ERA of 193, a whip of one, a strikeouts per nine innings of 11.6. He's not a top 100 prospect. He's an ads number nine prospect per MLB pipeline. I don't know how much Jake Bennett conversation you've had with people, but what's your sense on how he's being viewed by the organization? He's another guy who could work his way in up the ladder, kind of like a Jake Irvin, that they maybe don't count on him to be a frontline starter, but maybe he does make it a college pitcher from a good program, obviously, one they know well, given everyone they've drafted out of there. Because of that, you might move him a little faster along the chain. There's also a thought that he could end up being a reliever, which wouldn't be the worst thing. A left-handed reliever that you could have might be nice, but between guys like him, guys like Cole Henry who is coming back from thoracic outlet surgery and so far seems to be doing well, like Jake Irvin. This is your depth inventory. In the long run, you're hoping that Gore, Cavalli, Gray, and maybe Skeens, if they do draft him this summer, that that's your group that's going to lead the way. But you need depth beyond that, whether that's to fill out a rotation or to be a part of a bullpen. And so I think Bennett and all those others fit into that category. You hope one of them hits. Maybe one of them does turn out to be a a full-time big league starter. But even if not, you're going to need some of these arms along the way. They're definitely, before the end of the season, going to need some starting pitching help because we know that they're watching everybody's innings, particularly Mackenzie Gore, given that it's essentially his first full big league season. And speaking of Mr. Paul Skeens, so we have the NCAA tournament in college baseball going on. By the way, Maryland and George Mason are in the NCAA tournament. Each team is in the Winston-Salem Regional. Maryland did win its game on Friday afternoon, a 7-2 victory over Northeastern. Mason got smashed on Friday night, a 12-0 loss to Wake Forest. But also on Friday afternoon in the NCAA tournament was LSU, a 7-2 win over Tulane. The starting pitcher for LSU in that game was Paul Skeens, who was being talked about as being maybe the best pitching prospect for an MLB draft since Steven Strasburg in 2009. Paul Skeens in this game on Friday afternoon allowed two runs in a career-high nine innings, a complete game for Paul Skeens. He, in this game, had 12 strikeouts versus no walks. He, in this game, threw 124 pitches. This is... LSU saying, we know you're out of here after this year, so we don't care what happens to your arm. So go ahead and give us nine innings and throw 124 pitches. I mean, how how reckless is that, right? But anyway, Skeens was outstanding. And how about this? His final pitch of the game registered at 101 miles per hour. Pitch number 124 came in at 101. Even if you have some questions about the accuracy of radar guns in college baseball, that is something. It is hard not to be enticed by Paul Skeens and what he could be should the Nats take him with that number two overall pick in this year's draft. How do you think Mike Rizzo felt when he saw 125 pitches from this guy? I don't think he's ever going to get a chance to do that again if he becomes a professional for them. Wow. Yeah. It reminds me of Strasburg. Remember, he 
really burst onto the scene that year, but then he made it to the NCAAs and a lot of attention on him. He had the no-hitter at some point along the way that year for San Diego State. This guy is big time. There's no question about that. I think everybody seems to acknowledge he's got the stuff. He's got the makeup. He, he is the full package. It's just that eternal question about pitchers. Can he hold up physically? How long will he hold up physically? And are you willing to take a chance at it? I will say I know that Mike Rizzo has, in recent weeks, gone and seen all of these guys who could be the number two pick. Probably seen about five or six of the top players in the country. I think he's seen them all more than once. He's going to have a good sense in his mind of who the guy is that he wants. Now, it's also dependent on what the Pirates do with the number one pick. Maybe they take Dylan Cruz, the outfielder from LSU. Maybe they take Skeens. Maybe they go a surprise and go Langford from Florida or one of the high school kids. We don't know. But I do know, given his background, Mike Rizzo is going to put together a draft board when the time comes. He's going to have somebody rated number one. He's going to have somebody rated number two. And he's going to end up with one of those guys. And he's going to be really pleased with whoever that is, whether it's Skeens, Cruz, somebody else. It is true that position players are safer than pitchers because of the incidence of injury for pitchers. I mean, I don't think you can really debate that at this point. But it's also true that there are degrees of greatness for prospects, right? Like you can be, well, he's a really good pitching prospect. And then you have something like, no, he's the best pitching prospect since Strasburg in 2009. And so if the guy really is that good and you believe that, unless you just think that his mechanics are such that he has no chance to stay healthy, I think it's okay to take Skeens at two and pass, say, the guy Langford, Wyatt Langford, the Florida outfielder, who a lot of people think would be the number one overall pick in another year in which you didn't have two uber prospects in uh, Skeens and Cruz. So yeah, right now, I feel like the money is on Skeens to go to the Nats at number two. I mean, no way to me should you take one of these high school guys over Skeens. I think taking high school guys is really risky. Not that they can't work out, but man, I think it's tricky with these high schoolers. With college guys, you know more about them. You can more accurately assess the competition that they face. Their bodies are more developed. This seems like a pretty obvious thing. Assuming the Pirates go cruise at one, which is what most people think, you know, just take Skeens and don't think twice about it. Yeah, sometimes you can't overthink it. I think the other thing to keep in mind here, and this applies to all three of them, the two LSU guys and the Florida guy, the SEC right now is a total baseball powerhouse. That is, I think you have to view that competition as at a different level than a lot of other places. You know, Skeens, for those who don't know, transferred from Air Force. That's where he got his start. There's a lot of interesting stuff about his background and the Air Force background that makes him really disciplined and all these other things about his character. But it's one thing to dominate an Air Force. It's another thing to dominate at LSU against the SEC. And I think that does matter. And I think if you're Mike Rizzo, you're looking at all those guys and saying, they're not just doing this against great competition. That's not just showing they should be a top one or two pick. But that also means they're probably on a faster track to the big leagues. And whether they want to admit it or not, I think the people in charge of this organization feel like they want to have some instant results they want this rebuild to be as short as possible. They want to show everyone, whether it's current ownership, future ownership, the fan base, you name it, that they are back on track and that they can start winning soon. And if you have a guy who's that good, that could be big league ready that quickly, it's hard to pass that up. Keep in mind, Mike Rizzo, Davey Martinez, another year of contractual uncertainty. So if you're Rizzo, right, it would behoove you to have the rebuild on the fast track. And if you take Skeens, 
you know, Strasburg got drafted in 09, debuted in June 2010. You take Skeens this year, he could be debuting for you next year, just like, say, James Wood, just like, say, maybe one or two of the other Nats great prospects. So the mind can wander into all kinds of optimistic places here with what's happening. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the show and including if you would like to tell us about your memories of October 2019, your favorite moments, your favorite experiences from the Nats run to the World Series Championship. Send us a voice memo, record yourself into your smartphone, and then you can email us that file and that email address. Uh, one more time is natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We have a new website. You can check out natschatpodcast.com. Com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the music of the Nats Chat podcast. Visit timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. Boom swings, belts one to left field. Cortez going back. It's over his head, out into the wall. It is gone! Keyboom ends the game with a walk-up two-run homer. The second walk-off home run for the Wings this week. Six for Rochester. Keyboom flips the helmet away, gets the Gatorade bath again. And the Wings in 12 innings beat Syracuse six to four on the Keyboom homer. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.